Hello, everybody. This is Scott Yates, Director of Communications and Producer Relations for the Washington Grain Commission, here with Episode 205 of Weed All About It, or what I'm calling Malt to the Future, starring Bob Brueggemann. Brueggemann, who became Washington State University's barley breeder a year ago, grew up on a small farm in eastern Washington. He received his B.S. degree in genetics and cell biology from WSU in 1997, where he also received a master's and Ph.D. in crop sciences. He even met his wife at WSU. Is it any wonder that's why he calls the WSU barley breeding position his dream job? He was previously barley pathologist at North Dakota State University. I thought of the title for this episode after recently watching all three of the Back to the Future movies. But the title is also appropriate. Brueggemann is betting on malt as the barley type that will lead to the crop's renaissance in Washington. For those in need of barley enlightenment, barley is what I like to call a triple threat. As malt barley, it can be used in making beer and otherwise distilled. As a food, it can be eaten with heart-healthy consequences. As a feed, it can be fed to cattle and other livestock as a non-GMO alternative with a variety of dietary advantages. One might argue that all those benefits should confer a higher price for barley over wheat. The reality is anything but. Harvested barley acreage in 2020 in Washington fell to 71,000 acres for one reason primarily. Price. Well, market too. Barley just can't compete with corn. Barley isn't some newfangled crop. It's as old as the Bible, and like wheat, it's mentioned within the Holy Book's pages. Who knows, if barley hadn't that undigestible outer layer hull which clings to the seed, history might have turned out differently for the crop. But among other advantages, wheat is just easier to work with. Today, naked barley bred without the whole layer is available, but history doesn't do do-overs. There was a moment in Washington's past where it appeared barley might have a big future. The government had a program called EAP, for Export Enhancement Program, which subsidized exports. Barley took advantage of that, and in 1985, when the Washington Barley Commission was established, more than a million acres of barley were planted in the state. But EAP wasn't forever. Also, in the same year the Barley Commission was established, something else happened. Congress passed the 1985 Farm Bill with a provision for a new scheme called the Conservation Reserve Program. Early on, farmers put much of their marginal ground into the CRP, and much of that ground had historically been planted to barley. Of course, one can't forget another hitch in barley's get-along. In 1996, the first GMO corn variety was released by Monsanto, not only expanding the crop's geographical reach, but also increasing its yield potential rendering barley even less competitive on a per-acre basis. All that said, barley does something that wheat can't, or rather doesn't do as well, and that's make beer. The history of barley and beer go way back, but Brueggemann isn't as interested in history as he is in the future. Nevertheless, as I begin my interview with Brueggemann, 
I related my observations of the crop over the last 30 years, charting the rise and fall of barley as I saw it, including the closing of the Barley Commission in 2009, with the crop then coming in under the auspices of the Washington Wheat Commission, resulting in the name of the organization being changed to the Washington Grain Commission. Given that barley is unlikely to ever repeat its glory days, I asked Brueggemann what success will look like for barley going into the future. From my vantage point as the new barley breeder at WSU, I see see success for barley in Washington State and the region. It will be through the establishment of Eastern Washington as a known barley, malt barley producing region um, that's producing top grade malt barley. And that's not only to feed the needs of the U.S., which those needs have remained relatively static, even though, you know, with um, brew houses going from, you know, 50 brew houses at their low point in the 1980s up to over 5,000 now, with most of those being, you know, craft breweries, we would have thought that the use and need of barley would have went way up, but it's basically stayed pretty static around 150 million bushels going into the brewing industry. So not only would I see this need to be feeding the U.S. Uh, malt barley market, but also um, feeding the international export trade. So, you know, as you know, that the glory days of barley production was mainly fueling the feed market. Um, but with the explosion of corn, the bottom pretty, mu- pretty much dropped out of that feed market. And it became a less attractive rotation um, in the winter wheat rotations. So to return to that high water mark in millions of acres is probably not going to happen. But, you know, with that being said, we can look to the future and shifting, you know, towards the export market and showing that we produce this really high quality malt barley on the Palouse and in eastern Washington and the region. These markets are there especially when we consider that we have these shifting long-term weather patterns. There's areas of the world that are seeing a lot drier and hotter regions. And some recent research has come out showing that there is an expected or a predicted shortage in world malt barley production in in the future. And when you start looking at, say, Australia and Mexico having these hotter and drier weather um, patterns, you can see that there is going to be an opportunity in the Asian and Mexican malt barley export markets. Nice, nice. All right. So the Washington Grain Commission released nearly all of its barley reserves, around $233,000, in order to fund a malt barley facility at Washington State University at your request. What is it you're looking to accomplish with your own small-scale malt barley plant? The new malt barley analysis lab, I don't really look at it as a plant um, where we're producing malt, but rather kind of a micro-scale malt analysis lab with the infrastructure that includes the micro-malter, which really malts small batches so that we can do the chemistry and chemical analysis. And we also got those analysis instruments into the lab so that we can run these quality analysis on the WSU material that's coming out of the field on a real-time basis, year to year. As we're pulling the barley off the field, we'll be able to decide which ones, the ones that are yielding higher, have better farmer traits, 
to be able to run right through the malt quality analysis lab. And so that's going to allow us in real time to be able to make selections for the next generations of parents, as well as make the selections for which materials we're going to be putting back out into the field for our single and advanced yield trials. And so thus, it's really going to provide us with the tool to break this bottleneck in the malt quality analysis so that we are able to put more varieties out into the field that are already enriched for malt quality. So when we start to test them for, you know, the farmer traits, yield, standability, things like that, we have a higher number in the field that are already enriched for malt quality. Okay. What sort of premium might there be for malt over feed barley? Well, I mean, when you look at the NAS reports from 2019 for both feed and malt barley, you will see that uh, for feed barley, the price has hovered right around $3 a bushel, which is pretty low. However, when you look at the malt prices, even though they are relatively low and they could be much higher, they're hovering right around $5 a bushel. So, I mean, there's definitely a premium there for when you make malt grade and you're producing malt barley. Right now, those commodity prices are pretty low, so we would expect and hope to see those raise up more into the 7 to $8 a bushel range, which would make producing malt barley much more profitable for the producers. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Bob, I've heard you talk of craft maltsters. Now, I'm familiar with craft brewers. They make beer. But what are craft maltsters? With craft maltsters, they produce craft malt, you know, which is typically a specialty contracted or specialty malt that goes into the craft brewing industry. And it typically has different attributes like taste profile that are produced during the actual malting of the barley. So they change things in those parameters to give it these different attributes. Where with, you know, your base malt that comes out of the big malting facilities, it's pretty static on how they produce it and what's expected from the big breweries in a base malt. And so considering, you know, that if all of Washington craft beers were brewed with Washington sourced craft malt, it would command probably 10 to 12,000 acres of barley. So, you know, considering the most of the craft brewers are still using base malts that come from the big malt facilities like Great Western or RAR Malting, you know, still to keep their costs down, there is probably a pretty low ceiling or saturation in the craft market with specialty malts. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I know that there is a small craft maltster here in Spokane. I mean, would you expect that there will be other craft maltsters setting up business? Yeah, I'm sure that as the craft industry continues to explode, I mean, as you've seen that since the 1980s, we went from 50 breweries in the U.S. or active breweries in the U.S. to 5,000. These craft breweries, you know, they're they're developing beers that are of individual taste. You know, we, we used to have, you know, the major domestic beers, you know, people would expect that that beer when they opened it every time was the same thing that they opened every time you opened a a Budweiser or a Coors. But with the craft industry, you can see that we're moving into this situation where people want to try new things and want a new variety when they go into their beer. Bob, 
Barley is a crop with multiple bullseyes. Now, you can aim at the malting target, you can aim at the food target, or you can aim at the feed target. Now, you're still relatively a young man who could work another 20 years or more at your dream job. Where are you going to direct your energies in terms of the three targets I mentioned? Um, for me, moving into the future and the future of barley in Washington State, uh, the biggest target will definitely be developing high-quality spring and winter malt barley varieties that have high yield and are adapted across multiple environments in the state. We will continue making some of the crosses and advancing lines targeted to the feed and food classes, but definitely the main emphasis of my program and moving into the future and kind of projected to see what the markets are going to be like in the future. I think it's really going to be focused on malting varieties. And, you know, we have a strong spring program that I adopted, but this year we're really moving forward and developing the winter malt barley breeding program at WSU as well. All right. All right. Now, Oregon has always sort of been the leader in uh, winter barley. Are you cooperating with Oregon in that? Absolutely. Um, we're collaborating with uh, Pat Hayes, the barley breeder at Oregon State University, who has spent uh, over a decade, probably close to a couple decades, working on winter malt barley and malt barley varieties. And he's had some success with um, releasing some American Malt Barley Association lines that were accepted on their acceptable list, um, including Thunder and then just recently another variety, Lightning. Our collaboration with them, this will be the first year that we put out trials at Washington State University for yield and quality analysis as well as disease analysis. And so he provided us with uh, over 600 of his elite malting, elite distilling, and advanced malting lines from his winter program so that we could test them here on the Palouse and start getting a look at, you know, what works well here, you know, what's going to actually yield well. And then with that, we might be able to start moving forward with, he gave us access to this material so that we can start using some of that material as parental material when we start making crosses for the WSU winter barley breeding program. Got it. Got it. So, Bob, from my early days covering the barley industry beginning three decades ago, I know that it was difficult for Washington farmers to make malt quality for the large brewers, and subsequently their efforts would have to be sold for feed. What has changed in the last 20 years with regard to meeting those malt barley quality standards? Really, it's advancing and enhancing the genetics of barley varieties to um, handle different kinds of stresses that could be both biotic and abiotic stresses, whether with the abiotic stresses, it's summer heat or drought. Also, with the winter barley varieties, it could be, you know, tolerance to cold, so it has high survivability. And also, you know, we have the quality in barley varieties, but when we start to breed our material to bring in these different adaptabilities so that they can handle these different stresses across environments and still maintain their quality, that's where we're making gains in genetics, and that's where what we will continue to do to adapt high malt quality genotypes to the Pacific Northwest, Washington in particular, 
that has adaptability across the diverse environment so that can handle changes in these different stresses and be able to still pop out the other end with a quality malt barley. Is there an amount of rainfall that you need to make good malt quality? I mean, you know, the intermediate zone is, you know, 16 inches and above. Down there in the Palouse, you get 20 inches and above. But out west of town, you get, uh, you know, 12 inches if you're lucky. Yeah, and I mean, that is a big factor that plays into producing a quality malt barley is the amount of precipitation and amount of moisture that the barley has available in the soil. So, I mean, you're not going to be able to produce a quality malt barley in those really slow rainfall zones. But anything in the 16 plus, we can get barley adapted to be able to produce a quality malt. In those low rainfall zones, a lot of times you have smaller shriveled barley grains that are really high in protein, and those just are not going to make the malt quality grade. So, I mean, it's pretty unrealistic that we're going to develop a quality malt barley variety that's going to hold up in those really low rainfall zones, but we will and can make it in the 16-plus regions. All right. Okay. So let's be clear about what malting barley means. Can you explain the malting process? With malting barley, it has an important set of quality characteristics that make it optimal or optimize its use in making beer and distilling and the fermentation process. So, you know, I don't want to go into great deal about the different enzymes and their functions, but, you know, an optimal package of enzymes is required so that when you have these plump grains that have made grade that are full of complex carbohydrates, this package of different enzymes is required, you know, to break down those carbohydrates into simple sugars that are required for the fermentation and brewing process. So really when we talk about malt quality, that quality is basically having this specific set of different enzymes that are required to make a good malting quality barley lime that's able to do its job during that brewing process. And so with the brewers, you know, they've set up their processes, especially with the big domestic brewers, with very strict parameters on how long they, you know, utilize each component in that brewing process. You know, with the, with the craft brewers, they actually have the ability to adjust things so that they're able to use barley with slightly off parameters. But to make the American Malting Barley Association recommended list, you really have to stick and meet those very strict parameters, which were basically set up by the big domestic brewers because they can't change their process whatsoever because of such large volume they're putting through the brewery. Okay, okay. Now, you've talked about the big guys, MBEV and uh, Coors, for instance. Are you saying that there's a wider selection of what constitutes good malt barley or that the barleys themselves have improved? That's not really a good question. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, wanted to, I, wanted, I wanted to ask, um, so you've You've talked about the big guys and how important it is to have consistency batch after batch. With regard to the craft brewers, is there a wider selection of what is good malt barley? You know, there's different enzyme profiles that allow for a better craft malting variety with, you know, higher levels of enzyme. Um, but 
I would have to say that with the certain malt quality standard required of varieties to make the amber recommended variety list, you know, there's still this benchmark that's really pretty set and it really hasn't moved that much as far as the quality parameters. And with a lot of the craft industry and craft brewers, they're still utilizing those malting varieties that are coming out of the big malting facilities like the RARs, the Great Westerns, as their base malt because of the price. Okay. Does that mean that you'll be aiming for that AMBA, American Malt Barley Variety List, recommendations, or will you be outside of that? No, that's really why we've concentrated on getting the uh, um, Washington State University Malt Quality Lab set up so that we can really concentrate on making that benchmark. So we're really going all in on quality, 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 so that the varieties that we develop are able to make that list. Because if they don't make that list, they're not going to be malted in the big uh, malting facilities like Great Western, Great Western and RAR. Um, so we really need to shoot for that benchmark. But that doesn't mean that they're not quality varieties for the craft industry as well. And so as we really put effort into making that AMBA variety list with our WSU varieties that are high yielding, have all the farmer traits to be able to make that list as well, that barley and malt is still going to be a standard that can be used in the craft industry. but. With that being said, we're still going to look at different attributes of the barley lines that come off of our breeding program that have different taste profiles and things that have different attributes that the craft industry is interested in. That way, those barley varieties could possibly, you know, be released in a different avenue towards those more niche craft industry type varieties. Okay, okay. What's the number one malting variety today? Uh, where was it released from and what makes it so good? There isn't like a number one malting variety, but you, if you start thinking about number one in North America that uh, is grown on the dry land situations, you have to really think about CDC Copeland. You go to any malt house, contracts, acreage grown it's still one of the number ones and it's kind of still or is still is used as the standard for what we're looking in a malt quality package as far as the enzymes so i mean i you, cdc copeland has been king and so when we're looking at malting profiles as we put material through the malt quality testing lab CDC Copeland is always there as a standard where we want to meet or exceed, if possible, those malting standards for all the different categories, whether it be low beta glucan, high alpha amylase, the different um, important characteristics of that bar barley variety. And where was it released from? Uh, CDC Copeland was released out of Canada. And so some of the major two-row dryland malting barleys that are still, you know, grown on large acreages, CDC Copeland, AC Metcalf, and the new one, uh, Synergy, all came from that Canadian malting barley um, breeding programs. And that's the thing about Washington State University is we were all in on feed for most of the history of the breeding program. And it's only been within the last 
just over a decade that we really started shifting towards malt barley. So you have to realize that this program, as far as a malt barley breeding program, is still really in its infancy. So as we move forward, we're bringing in a lot of this quality material from these different breeding programs that have been doing this for a long time and throwing a lot of material out in the field so we can see what performs well. And then we've made a lot of crosses in the last year since I started as the new barley breeder to really start trying to get adapted material and stuff into the pipeline, especially for this new malt quality testing lab. So let's shift gears a bit here. There was a day when corn and barley were arguing about total energy values of each feed for various animals, cattle primarily. And the Barley Commission at the time had studies conducted looking for barley's advantage over corn. How would you referee the debate on corn versus barley for feeding today? Well, obviously, I'm going to be biased and go in the direction of barley. But, you know, as far as total energy, um and value in that corn is going to win, you know, because it produces the most tonnage per acre and, you know, the most beef or milk per acre, you know. And so if you want your biggest returns, you know, things are going to go in the corn direction. And I mean, that's the problem that we've encountered with, you know, barley as a feed. But I mean, if you look at like the nutritional value, barley as a nutritional feed, you know, it has higher crude protein, higher amino acid contents and prone uh, than corn. It's uh, got, you know, higher micronutrient and mineral contents. Thus, you know, it provides uh, higher nutrition for the animal and a healthier gut. But, you know, it's hard to compete with corn, especially because of the tonnage that's being produced per acre. Yes, yes. So I mentioned that 71,000 acres of barley were harvested in 2020. At your most optimistic how many acres could you see dedicated to growing malt barley in the state? You know, in my op- most optimistic, I would love to see, you know, three to 400,000 acres of winter and spring malting barley being grown, you know, within that winter wheat rotation. And it's all going to depend on the needs in the U.S. and the export malt, you know, markets for malt. Um, like I said, you know, for example, when I was just before I left North Dakota State University, there was this deal that was going in the works with the Grupo Modelo in Mexico to contract large, vast amounts of acreage for malt barley for uh, brewing in Mexico. And I mean, as you know, this or may, or may or may not know, the Hispanic demographic is one of the fastest growing beer consumptions. And, you know, they are really into Modelo's and Corona's. So I know this deal fell through because of some of the tariff issues, but it means that, you know, once COVID and things are dealt with, you, you know, Mexico, the Asian um, uh, export market and things are going to open up again. And there's a place for, you know, Pacific Northwest barley to make it into these export opportunities. After I spoke to Brueggemann, I read an article about China's ban on Australia barley exports worth nearly $400 million last year. And of course, you heard Brueggemann talk about the deal that was almost reached to export North Dakota barley to Mexico. There are times I miss the forest for the trees, and I think this episode is a case in point. For all the questions I ask about craft brewers, 
The reality is that Brueggemann isn't talking about building a malt barley industry on the back of domestic demand. He's talking about following Wheat's example and exporting to success. The more I think about it, the more I like his idea, especially given the demographics of some of our Asian customers. Lots of young people looking for new sensations. And doesn't an array of plentiful beer choices fill that goal? I hope you enjoyed episode 205, or what I called Malt to the Future, starring Bob Brueggemann. Please hoist a cold one for me, and then join me here again next week for another episode of Weed All About It! You think we're simple, you think we're not right. Look at your cities and ask yourself who's right. We've got country and you've got crime. We've got green and you've got grime. Let there be no doubt, we have what it takes to till the soil and fill our back aches. Just give us a break and don't be so rude. We love the work and you love the food. We feed you.